If you'll join me in Exodus chapter 20, continue in our (coughs) series through the Ten Commandments, Ten Words, the Law of God. This morning we'll be looking at the ninth word, lies upon lies. Exodus chapter 20, we'll be looking at verse 16. Our key words for our worshipers and training are truth, lie, and honesty. There's a man named Jeff Harris who would have to be considered one of the most highly decorated American military veterans since the Vietnam War. Harris told a North Carolina reporter that he had, among other accomplishments, 316 confirmed sniper kills in three years and an impressive collection of 70 service awards, including the Distinguished Service Cross, the Soldier's Medal, two Silver Stars, 31 Army Achievement Medals, and 23 Army Commendation Medals. It is also reported that Harris was the main inspiration for the movie Black Hawk Down that depicted the 1993 Operation Restore Hope and the Battle of Mogadishu, Somalia, in which 18 American Special Operations troops died. Now, the only problem with this story, of course, is that none of it's true. Harris, like so many other military frauds, presented himself as an airborne ranger, a former member of the 75th Ranger Regiment, when in fact he never served in special operations in the United States military at all. In assessing his claim, the curator of the Military Times Hall of Valor said only two soldiers were ever awarded the Distinguished Service Cross and the Silver Star since the Vietnam War, and Harris's name was not among them. And he's also quoted as saying that no other sniper in history that I'm aware of has more than 200 kills. Now, these stories are so common that there are entire websites and entire... There's people who dedicate their lives to tracking these fraudulent claims. It's a full-time job for some men. The most popular is the Army Times Hall of Stolen Valor. You can go on the website and read about it. Every year there are dozens of men and women who fraudulently claim to be something they're not. And they get publicity, they get respect and honor and money. They are talk show, they're on talk shows, they are uh, brought in through parades, um, all of it a fraud. And we hear such stories like this and we shake our heads in disbelief. We can't imagine that someone would do that. At the same time, we need to remember that we live in a culture that actually differentiates between when something's lying or when something's a little white lie or something's twisting the truth or telling a half-truth as though any of those were any different. A Time Magazine survey of 3 million job applicants indicated that nearly 50% of American resumes contain at least one falsehood. In so many different circumstances, we're tempted to lie, to protect our reputation, to keep from hurting someone else's feelings, to make our credentials more impressive, or to appear more accomplished as fishermen or golfers. Lying is mainstream. And we can even find those who would attempt to argue that it's often a necessity. But God has spoken very clearly on this issue. So let's look together in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 16. 
You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. One of the greatest explanations of the Ninth Commandment is in the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563. Question 112 asks, What is God's will for you in the Ninth Commandment? And here's the answer it gives. God's will is that I never give false testimony against anyone, twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, nor join in condemning anyone without a hearing or without a just cause. Rather, in court and everywhere else, I should avoid lying and deceit of every kind. These are devices the devil himself uses, and they would call down on my God's intense anger. I should love the truth, speak it candidly, and openly acknowledge it. And I should do what I can to guard and advance my neighbor's good name. Now, in this definition, we're told what's forbidden in the Ninth Commandment, and we also see what's commended. So we're we're going to look at the negative exhortation and the positive affirmation of the Ninth Commandment. So let's look closely at each. Now, I think it proved very difficult if you were to ever attempt to find someone who, at least in word, would disagree with the Ninth Commandment most people are going to say, at least on the surface, that lying is wrong. But it's interesting that a command so widely accepted as important and reasonable is so often ignored in our day-to-day lives. A writer from Time magazine once wrote, The injunction against bearing false witness branded in stone and brought down by Moses from the mountaintop, has always provoked ambivalent, conflicting emotions. On the one hand, nearly everybody condemns lying. On the other hand, nearly everyone does it every day. And then he adds this little biting rebuke. How many of the Ten Commandments can be broken so easily and with so little risk of detection over the telephone? how true and how common it is. Up front, it's very important for us to recognize the context of this commandment that God has given, primarily given with with the context in mind of the court of law. And its most foundational level, the ninth commandment was given by God to govern the legal testimony The testimony that a witness gives in a public trial before a jury. In its immediate context, the reference to one's neighbor suggests that this trial is to happen within the covenant community. But certainly we can't limit it to that because Jesus himself tells us that our neighbors are everyone. So the specific issue condemned by God in the ninth commandment is a lying witness, a witness who gives false testimony against anyone in the court of law. And if you, uh, if you know anything of the court of law in the ancient world, uh, when someone was in court, they were not afforded the protections that were given today. Uh, evidence obviously didn't come in the form of DNA and fingerprints. The accused were considered guilty until proven innocent. And often the evidence was presented by the accuser against the accused. 
And if the court thought that case was strong enough, oftentimes the accused were never even given a chance to defend themselves. So we can see why God gave us the ninth commandment as he did. Nearly everything presented in court was based on the testimony of witnesses. So very often it was one man's word against another man's word. And consider also that many crimes in the ancient world were punished by death. It's not a a simple fine or some community service or a week in jail. We're talking about death. So very literally, the truthfulness of a witness could be the determining factor between someone's life and someone's death. The words of a false witness could be fatal. But in Israel, by God's providence, the people who were under God's theocratic rule had a very different system of law. God did not allow for the injustice of the world to have a place within the covenant community of his people. When a member of the covenant community was placed on trial, he appeared before a jury of elders. They were to be godly men who would hear the case. There had to be more than one witness. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And this was particularly important when it related to an offense that was punishable by death. No man could be put to death by a single witness. So we recognize in the civil law of God how the moral law of not bearing false witness was to be worked out. God's people were not allowed to bring false accusations against one another, particularly in the court of law. The prophet Zechariah wrote, These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. God hates lies. God takes truth-telling very seriously. Now, as we understand that, we have to see also, though, that the ninth commandment does not stop in the courtroom. The spirit of the law of the ninth commandment is that God forbids every form of falsehood. We can understand this a little bit more if we think about the words of the prophet Hosea. In Hosea chapter 4 and verse 2, he accused the Israelites of swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. What do those things sound like? It's very obvious that Hosea is referring to the Ten Commandments. He's saying the Israelites have broken them. But what I want to note is that Hosea didn't refer to bearing false witness. He used the general term lying, the Hebrew word that means you shall not lie. This really gets to the heart of the ninth commandment. It most certainly includes a testimony given in court, but it also includes every other word that comes out of our mouth, any word that we write. So the stakes have been raised for us, haven't they? 
Now, in theory, I think we would all say that we want to be told the truth, don't we? In theory. T.S. Eliot once wrote, humankind cannot bear very much reality. In other words, truth-telling makes it possible for people to coexist. But a little lying, we've convinced ourselves, makes such society tolerable. So we justify our lies by assuming it's, it's a greater thing, it's a greater good to tell our friend that they've, got, they've really got what it takes to be the next American Idol. When in reality... I mean, come on, some of those people just don't really have anyone around them that actually loves them, do they? Look, if it's more pleasant to listen to a cow being slaughtered with a steak knife than to listen to your friends sing, you've got to tell them. But all joking aside, we've convinced ourselves that lying is simply a means to an end. And perhaps we might justify it's not even all that big of a deal so long as the goal is achieved in the end. If it keeps us from having to speak a hard word or to correct an obvious sin, we find comfort in justifying our lies. But God places a very high value on truth because when truth is replaced by deceit in any relationship, that relationship loses value. So let's think about how this is true based upon the catechism answer that I provided earlier. God's will is that I never give false testimony against anyone. Have you ever distorted someone else's words or their ideas or their beliefs when retelling them? Or spoken a half-truth to bolster your position or to lay waste to theirs? This is very common in discourse among Christians as we seek to present someone else's position that maybe we disagree with. It's very tempting to present theirs in a way that is easy to strike down. But when they would hear it, would say, I don't agree with that. That's not what I believe. So God's will is I never give false testimony. I never twist anyone's words. How many times have I retold the circumstances of a story as to make myself out to be the hero and everyone else was simply a witness to my excellence? How quick am I to retell the words of others differently that they were than, differently than how they were spoken and in a context of my own creation as to, profu- to prove my rightness and their wrongness. God's will is that I not gossip or slander. When the Bible condemns gossip, it means something more than just casual talk about other people's business. Gossip is talking about people in a way that damages their reputation with others. And reputations are important. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. And when we gossip with words, it's called slander. When we gossip in writing, in print, it's called libel. Either way, gossip is destructive, it is hurtful, especially because the one who's being gossiped about is not present, is not given the opportunity to defend themselves. 
Philip Ryken writes, they never have a chance to explain the circumstances, to clarify their motives, or to correct the misconceptions people have about them. Instead, they are charged, tried, and convicted in the court of public opinion. Most gossip contains a fair amount of misinformation. And people who gossip trade in hearsay, rumor, innuendo, and other notoriously unreliable forms of communication. And listen, just because something may be true doesn't mean that our talking about it isn't gossip. Nor does beginning the statement with something like, I really love her, but... Or ending it with, bless her heart... We need to ask some questions of our words before they're spoken. Questions like, is what I am about to say true? If it is true, does it really need to be said to this person in this conversation? How about this one? Would I say the same thing in the same way if the person I'm talking about were standing right here next to me. If not, there's a problem. And how about when we listen to gossip? The Puritan Thomas Watson wrote, He that raises a slander carries the devil in his tongue, and he that receives it carries the devil in his ear. And we love to hear it, don't we? Proverbs 18.8 nails us here. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. We have to get into the habit of saying things to others like, you know, this is starting to sound like gossip. We need to talk about something else. Or, I really don't need to hear all the details about this. Have you spoken directly to the other person about this? If not, it's certainly right for you to have that conversation. We need to have that sort of response ready, and certainly all of us will have opportunity to say it, and certainly all of us will create our own opportunities to hear it. We need to be very careful about gossip. It is destructive. And the Bible so often speaks about the the destruction that comes as a result of gossip and how it can tear people and relationships apart, how it can tear churches apart. We need to be very, very careful. God's will is that I not join in condemning anyone with a hearing or without a just cause. Now, this goes back to what we already looked at. The concept of innocent until proven guilty is a biblical concept. According to the Apostle Paul, love demands, 1 Corinthians thirteen seven. love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We must weigh out the evidence prior to assuming someone else's guilt. As Christians, we are called to make judgments, but we're to do it with the hope that the people that we're considering are perhaps innocent. We want to go into every situation thinking the best. We want to give the benefit of the doubt. We want to think better than what the situation might portray. In just the same way that we would want others to judge us with charity and love and grace 
and patience. We should seek to see our neighbor in the best possible light. Very, very important. God's will is that in court and everywhere else, I should avoid lying and deceit of every kind. That leaves no stone unturned, right? Lying and deceit of every kind. And the temptation in this category is very high at times. Pretending to have knowledge about a certain subject we know nothing about as to appear in the know. Exaggerating the amount of hours we spend in the office working or in the kitchen slaving away to be more appreciated by those around us. Telling fish stories or constantly engaging in one-upsmanship to meet our own standards of worth. Not disclosing the full story as to avoid a hard conversation or the need to provide an explanation. Lying and deceit of every kind. Guilty. We're all guilty. The ninth commandment is very very applicable to each and every one of our lives every single day. So this is the exhortation, the negative side of the ninth commandment. Let's consider the positive affirmation that we receive in the ninth commandment. Very simply, it is that we will tell the truth, that God is pleased when we tell the truth. Philip Ryken writes this, We are called to be people of truth. If we are scholars, we are called to be careful with our quotations and fair with our criticisms. If we are politicians, we are called to be honest about our record as well as that of our opponents. If we are in business, we are called to deal honestly with people. If we are journalists, we are called to get the story straight. These are only examples, of course. Every discipline has its own deceptions, but whatever lies people tell in our line of work, we are called to tell the truth. Now remember, all of the Ten Commandments are a reflection of God's nature, a reflection of who God is. And the Ninth Commandment is a great example of this. Let me give you only a few scriptures from the Bible. Romans 3, 4. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. John 1, 14 tells us that Jesus is true. He came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Isaiah 53.9, a prophecy about Jesus, says that there was no deceit in his mouth. John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 18.37, Jesus said, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. 1 John 4.6 tells us that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Jesus reminds us as he prays to the Father in John 17, 17, that his every word is truth. And so we see very clearly in the scriptures that the ninth commandment is display of God's nature, his nature as truth, as telling the truth, as displaying the truth, as the very sum and substance of all truth. John Calvin summarized the ninth commandment by saying, the purpose of this commandment is... Since God, who is truth, abhors a lie, we must practice truth without deceit toward one another. 
This means speaking well of others, answering questions with honesty. And since the law points us to our duty toward our neighbors, it also means that we will defend others when they are being unfairly attacked. You know, our silence sometimes can carry just as much guilt as the one who's speaking something that is false. And I think that we ought to, among one another, in the body of Christ, we ought to know, we ought to be able to trust in one another that if we hear falsehoods about each other, that we would be at each other's defense. That as those who love one another, as neighbors, as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would be quick to defend our brother, to defend our sister. Because we don't want falsehoods being spoken about one another. So let's not be a people who are silent when we hear lies, when we hear gossip, when we hear slander. Telling the truth is defending the truth and defending those who we love in wisdom and truth. Now, you might be wondering in all of this, is lying ever acceptable? Is there ever a time when I should tell a lie? This issue has come up throughout the history of the church. What about times of warfare or persecution? Is it okay to lie in those circumstances? Most theologians through the years have said no. But we cannot deny there are various incidents in the Bible when deception was not outrightly condemned by God. But we must realize that it wasn't praised either. Consider the Hebrew midwives who deceived Pharaoh to prevent the genocide of the Hebrew children. There was Rahab who deceived the Canaanites to save Joshua's spies. There was Gideon who used concealment as a, as a stratagem of war. But the Bible never outright condemns these falsehoods, but each of them was told to prevent evil men from committing even greater sins such as murder. And so one was done to uphold the other. But we should not use these extreme cases to justify falsehood when we are in difficult situations and think our ends justify our means. I doubt very highly that any of us will be put in a situation where we are called to prevent genocide. Maybe, but probably not. And even in those rare cases when a lie seems necessary to protect our neighbor's life, it's still a lie. And that's not something we need to deal lightly with. It's very, very important that our focus is being committed to telling the truth. It's essential for us as Christians, if we were to live lives pleasing to God, bringing glory to God, and accurately displaying His character to the world around us, that we are committed to truth. Now, as I say that, though, I realize there are some warnings we need to keep in mind as we consider truth-telling. There are some difficulties that arise when it comes to being truthful. It's a difficult thing. And I will be the first to admit I've been very wrong on this on many occasions. If I were to try to make a list, I couldn't possibly recall all the conversations I've had 
where I wish I could take some things back. Unloving comments that cause a sting. Hurtful jokes to get a laugh. Biting sarcasm to prove a point. Harsh criticism to show superiority. I think back on these instances, I remember many of them were times when I felt completely justified in what I was saying and what I was doing because I was simply telling it how it is. I spoke the truth, but I did so without reminding myself of the exhortation of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4.15. Paul said, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. How frequently do we speak the truth without love? When attempting to correct others who have used harsh words or perhaps in our own efforts to rationalize, it is common to hear the phrase, I'm just telling it how it is. Or, it's the truth, isn't it? But it's fully possible to say something that is true in a sinful and hurtful manner, in a way that doesn't please God, and in a way that violates the Ninth ninth Commandment. And that may sound odd because the Ninth Commandment deals with telling a lie, and the truth is the truth, whether or not we like it. But to simply say what we want to say because it's truthful... And to just have an attitude of, I'm just telling it how it is. I'm just calling a spade a spade. That's not a biblical concept. In fact, it's the truth that sets us free. Solomon reminds us in Proverbs 18.21 that death and life are in the power of the tongue. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Death and life, sword thrusts and healing. Now, undoubtedly, our words hold tremendous power. And we have a great need to be instructed from Paul. Let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So how do we speak the truth in love? Is it true that sometimes the truth will, in fact, hurt? Absolutely. We can't get around that. But Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. In other words, there's a way to say what's true, even though it might hurt, while simultaneously communicating love and grace. A way of telling the truth as a friend not as a truth-telling tyrant. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not going soft on the truth and suggesting that we're not to correct error, that we're not to address sin or to confront those who are teaching um, or communicating falsely. What I am saying is that there is a way of doing it which honors the spirit of God's law. And there's a way of doing it that simply adheres to the letter. We need to maintain the balance of the letter of God's law and the spirit of God's law. And I want to suggest to us that incautiously driving ahead with what's true without considering how I'm going to present it is reckless, is unhelpful, and possibly even breaking the ninth commandment. 
the spirit of the ninth commandment, when weighed with the evidence I've provided in the scripture, is that the truth always matters. The truth must always be told. But how it is told is important also. And it's at the heart of our responsibility to love our neighbors. So I want to give us some practical ways that we can think about this, some ways to work this out. As we think about the ninth commandment, as people who are very concerned about truth and speaking the truth in love, how can we get it right? I have five considerations here that I want us to think about. First is that we need to discern our motives. Discern your motives. What fuels your desire to speak truth into a person's life? It is possible to speak the same words with the desire to simply prove your rightness and ignite your pride and win an argument as opposed to seeing a potential harm and allowing another person to walk in that falsehood at that specific time. In other words, is your concern for yourself or is your concern for the other person? Your demeanor and your approach will prove which is true to the one who receives your comments. Will your motive in addressing the falsehood that you see in your neighbor leave them saying, faithful are the wounds of a friend? Or will they simply be bloodied by the attack while you march off in victory? We need to discern our motives. Secondly, it's very important that we remember the power of words. James reminds us of the incredible power of the words we use. In James 3, 3 through 5, he writes, If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. James continues by comparing the tongue to a fire, setting the entire forest ablaze, reminding us that no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. What a deadly weapon we can wield with our tongues, right? J. Adams remarks, Truth without love becomes a wicked weapon. I try to remind myself that sticks and stones can only break bones, but words have the ability to kill. Words are very powerful They have been the cause of wars and revolutions. They bring relationships to an end. They motivate. They inspire. They were the very means by which God brought all things into existence. God created all things by the power of His Word. And let's not fool ourselves into thinking words don't matter. There are very few things in the world that matter so much. Words are very powerful. We must remember that whenever we use them. Third, we need to ask ourselves, how am I going to say it? How am I going to say it? We should always ask ourselves this question before we let loose with what we perceive to be the truth. 
a big part of speaking the truth in love is how we go about it. An arrogant, down-looking approach will never receive the same response as a side-by-side at the foot of the cross approach. It's important that we take the time to figure out how our words are going to be perceived by others, knowing that we are all stained by falsehood in sin. I can tell another person that they're wrong and affirm that I am right, or I can explain to them why their words and their, their actions or their beliefs are not consistent with the Scriptures and remind them that Jesus is our measuring rod. Certainly, we've all been in conversations where we realize that the other person speaking to us was correct, but the way in which they communicated that truth made it much more difficult for us to receive. Now, again, to be clear, we certainly have a responsibility to receive the truth without being ready to take an offense. But it's nice not having to sort through the pile of trash to find the nugget of gold we're looking for, isn't it? The Bible exhorts us to be slow to speak. So we need to be thoughtful about how we're going to say what we are going to say. It makes a huge difference. Fourth, we need to ask ourselves, is it necessary? I need to ask whether or not what I'm going to say is even necessary at all. Is it possible to speak too quickly and too often? Perhaps we need from time to time to gather more information prior to approaching another person about some concern that we might have. Asking questions of clarification prior to offering our personal commentary will more times than not change one's perspective on how an issue should be addressed. I try to go by a rule of thumb in my life that I would be able to state a person's position back to them in a way that they agree with prior to offering what I believe to be the truth in that situation. Now, again, I say I try to use that as a rule of thumb, but there's work to be done. But we should all think about that in our conversations. Am I understanding what the other person is saying? If I repeat it back to them, will they say, yes, I agree? If not, we need to figure out what they are trying to say. We should think about this in our conversations, and particularly with those we have a vast array of disagreements. Now think about it this way. As we ask the question, is it necessary to speak? There will be those that you disagree with on almost everything. Now, as you, if you're going on a big game hunt, you're hunting elephants... And if you only have five or six rounds to shoot in your gun, if I'm hunting elephants and I only have six rounds to do it, I'm not going to shoot a squirrel or a rabbit that runs by. I need my firepower to be focused elsewhere. In other words, my focus in conversation doesn't need to be correcting every single statement that I hear that's incorrect. I need to consider whether or not, given the person, given the conversation, given the main focus and the level of importance, whether or not it's even necessary to spend time on it. If not, Lord willing, there will be opportunities again. But I don't know many people who want to have a lot of conversations with someone who stops them every sentence to correct them. 
So we need to ask, is it necessary? And fifth, when we are speaking the truth in love, we need to remind ourselves and whoever we're talking to of the gospel. Most importantly, we must always remember that the essence of speaking the truth in love is doing so with the gospel at hand. C.J. Mahaney reminds us, never correct without reminding the individual at some point of the gospel. Any conversation, including correction, must also include the gospel because biblical correction is incomplete apart from the gospel. And parents, this includes you when you're correcting your children. It must be filled with gospel talk. Ken Sandy wrote about his experience in this area. He wrote, The Lord is graciously working to teach me a better way to approach others about their failures. Instead of coming at them with the law, I am learning to bring them to the gospel. In other words, rather than dwelling on what people should do or have failed to do, I'm learning to focus primarily on what God has done and is doing for them through Christ. And so as we point to something where someone has failed to live up to God's standard, we point out that while we fail, Christ has not failed. So correction with the truth is worthless without the gospel. It offers no foundational reason for why one should abide by the truth. And it offers no hope for anyone who's walking outside of the truth. The most loving way to address another person is with the gospel. And not just unbelievers. Christians need a daily reminder of the gospel. So remind them of Jesus. And of course, don't forget to remind yourself. Speaking the truth is crucial in this life, and it is so often undervalued and underemphasized in our culture. Nevertheless, when our heart's desire is to just tell it how it is without considering how to do so in love, we do damage to the very truth that we're called to communicate. Let us strive to tell the truth with the same heart as David in Psalm 19:14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What's implied in all of this in our relationship to eternity? What's implied in the ninth commandment is that only those who keep the ninth commandment who are, they are the only ones who are worthy to enter the kingdom of God. But what about those who break it? Jesus said in Revelation 21.8, the place where liars belong is in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, and that everyone who loves and practices falsehood will be shut out from his eternal city forever. The Bible is clear that every liar deserves to die and after that to suffer God's eternal wrath against sin. And so all of us have to admit that you and I deserve to die and to suffer God's eternal wrath against sin because we have lied. And when we lie, we lie about God because God is truth. And if there's one thing God's hate, God hates, 
It is the lies that Christians tell to make themselves appear more righteous than they really are. And we've talked about this before. Can we, can we get beyond this? Listen, here's the truth. You and I are really, really screwed up, right? We're broken. Our hearts are scattered. We rely on God and the means of grace that He's given us far less than we portray. And it's because we're sinners. You know what? That's the number one requirement for you to be a member of this church. You have to be a sinner. A dirty, broken sinner. But here's the deal. You have to admit that sin and recognize the seriousness of it. We're not righteous at all. And to pretend that we are is to simply fool ourselves and attempt to fool others who see right through it. We need to be more honest with each other. But we need to start with ourselves. Do we have ourselves fooled about the sin in our lives? We tell ourselves it's not that bad. It doesn't really need to be dealt with. I can carry the fire without getting burned. Come on. You don't have to tell me about it, but can you at least be honest with yourself right now as you think about your righteousness, your striving for self-righteousness before God? The testimony of every Christian is that there is no way that we could ever be saved apart from the mercy and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ because the sin of our hearts is so deep and so pervasive that we are constantly prone to rebel against God. Can we at least be honest about that? The real truth about us is that we are so guilty that the very Son of God had to be crucified on our behalf to pay for our sins. So if that's true, then why would we ever pretend to be anything more than sinners saved by grace, saved by the death of another? To act like we have it all together is a lie and we need to give it up. And even more than it being a lie is that it's a denial of the grace of God, which alone has the power to save us. If you are a Christian, God has loved you to the point of placing the penalty for your lies on His Son. Don't minimize that by lying about your struggle with sin. Be honest. We need Jesus, and that is nothing to be ashamed of. Something wonderful happens when we're willing to confess the real truth about ourselves and about our sins. What happens is that we are able to see the real truth about Jesus and what He's done for our salvation. It is only when we tell the truth about our sin that we are able to see how much we desperately need our Savior. And if you're not a believer in Christ today, you need a Savior. And Christ is the only Savior that truly saves. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And there is no way to get to the Father but through Him. And He Himself, the author of truth, has told us that when you know Him, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. God help us. Let's pray together.
Father of truth, thank you. Thank you that you have given us your word, which is truth, that points us to Christ, who is truth. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, you are at work in our hearts to reveal to us the truth of our condition and the truth of our need for our Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that you give each of us a desire to walk in truthfulness, to speak the truth in love, to not be gossips, to not slander, to not twist words and distort circumstances and situations and when, when we talk in order to build ourselves up and to put others down but that we be concerned with truth, with rightly displaying your nature. I pray, God, that you help us all to be defenders of the truth, but to do so in a way that pleases you and brings honor to you and that wins our hearers. Lord, we ask that you help us to have hearts of gratitude, that you have revealed to us what is right and true, and that we would be so overwhelmed with that great gift that we would seek to display the goodness of that gift to others. And so, Lord, let us be a people of truth, filled with love and grace and gratitude most importantly because you have taken the penalty for our lives and placed it upon Christ and punished it on our behalf that we might live and dwell with you forever and ever. It is a great and glorious reality that we rejoice in. Thank you. Lord, help us. Guide us. Strengthen us. We love you. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.